start out today with a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, we sent out emails. Uh, we sent out Facebook messages. Uh, we, we, we've done multiple things to be able to kind of say this week, as we're in the week four of our series, Mr. and Mrs. Wrong, we're tackling the topic of lust. We're leaning specifically into the topic of sexual lust. And today, if you are here and you are in fifth grade or down and you're in this room, I'm just, I'm parents, uh, hopefully they're here with you. I'm just going to ask that you, you know, you know, discreetly, quietly, you make, make a way to go get them out of here because we're going to be journeying into some PG-13 things. And again, this is a, we're a real-life church that talks about real-life things to help real-life people make their real lives better because of the gospel. And children's ministry is, is right over that way. And um, your kids would be much better off hearing about Jesus on their level today as opposed to having the talk in the minivan home with you because uh, that's what's going to happen if they stay in here with us. If you got a middle schooler, uh, I trust, I walked by that room over there. There's middle schoolers all in this uh, 203, 202 room right here. Um, that's all going on in there. If you're a high schooler, uh, listen, uh, ma'am or sir, you're not going to hear anything that you haven't already heard in my talk today in a locker room or online. So uh, we're all on the same page there. Um, my, my other disclaimer that I'll say here as I get ready to journey into a topic like this, because I've never done this as your pastor before, okay? So you guys just got to kind of know where I'm coming at from this. The primary reason, I said this earlier in the week, the primary reason why we're leaning into and talking about these issues of sexual morality and the pain and then we're, we're diving into these, these kind of taboo-ish topics at church is because our Bible is not PG. Our Bible talks about these things and we can't just go, hey, well, we'll just skip over that stuff and talk about Philippians 4.13 some more about how I can do all things. Listen, but sometimes all thing is not looking at porn. Sometimes doing all things is getting healing from being sexually molested. Sometimes all things are really all things, not just the church-appropriate things. So we're going to lean into that today. And my prayer is that as we do, we're able to go to God's Word and find freedom, find healing that we all desperately need. The other reason we're going here, not just because it's biblical, is because for me it's personal. It's crazy looking at my son at seven years old and knowing that I was the exact same age when I went into a sock drawer as a nosy seven-year-old and found a magazine that jacked up a large part of my life. There was this undercurrent of this thing that was awoke. And many of you have a similar story, whether it's at your own house or at somebody's sleepover or at that buddy who got that free AOL disc, right? Y'all threw that bad boy in, and everybody and their mom went, ding, 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 ding. and then you got AOL, and the internet happened. And you said, wow, a world of unlimited negative possibilities were opened up to you. So for me, it's personal, man. I, I've walked through this. I've journeyed through this. Restoration healing is part of my story. And I felt it. I know how bad it hurts. But I've also felt freedom. I've also experienced confession. I've also experienced Jesus switching and changing desires. And I stand here before you as a man who says, it is possible to receive the freedom that Jesus can bring from sexual shame. So today, if you've got a Bible, we're going to dive in this passage where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking to a church in Corinth. If you've got a Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, start in verse 12. We're going to go down through verse 20. It's the most important part that we're going to read. I'm going to give you a little bit of context for Corinth and both how Paul is addressing this conversation that he's getting ready to have with this church. So Corinth, first of all, what you got to know is Corinth was the sex capital of Rome. 
It, it was essentially their version of Las Vegas. So Paul, as he's writing to Corinthian Christians, and again, these are people who up until that point in time, there was not just like religiosity on the scene. Paul is writing to people who are becoming brand new Christians as adults. Nobody went to Sunday school in Corinth. None of them. He's writing to brand new Christians who are coming into their faith in the most sexually saturated, lust-driven society that the earth had ever seen at that point in time. And so Paul is writing into these people, some of which who had been prostitutes, some of which who had been marks, some of which who had, had been men who had put women on stages in front of other people for their molestation, some of which who had been men who had been in their happily married lives, but at the same time would go find prostitutes to sleep with and they would just use and exploit each other left and right. That was the society of people he was writing to because they were asking him the question as he's having conversations through letters back and forth of going, Paul, we're Christians now. There's no way that this stuff can fly, right? Or Paul, hey, these are all the things. This is just so much of our habit. This is just so much of our life. This has to fly, right? There are people on both sides of the perspectrum. And, and Paul reaches right in into a society that's very much like ours, driven by sexual enlightenment, driven by desire to express ourselves, driven by desires to have needs and things satisfied us. And Paul reaches right into them and has a conversation that I believe is life-changing for them and can be life-changing for you. So let's lean in together. First, what I want you to see here, you're gonna see it right off the bat as we enter into verse 12. You're gonna see quotations. What's happening here, and it may be confusing if you just kind of read it and just saw it, but what's happening here is Paul, in his writing of this letter, he is quoting a letter that they wrote to him. So Paul reached out to them. They, they're talking, and Paul says, hey, here's all you do. They're responding back in their letter going, okay, well, Paul, explain this. Okay, explain this. And so when you see stuff in quotations up on the screens or in your Bible, if you're reading along or, or watching online, you are going to be able to see what Paul says that they're saying, and then he gives his commentary on it. All right? Let's walk through this. Start in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I have the right to do anything. You say, again, he's quoting them. But not everything is beneficial. That's his commentary. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall he then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever unites, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a person commits are outside of the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay, here's what I know. Even at the onset of hearing a verse like that, you're beginning to feel something start to happen in here. You know this is where we're going. You hear a verse like that in God's word. It begins to do what it's actually equipped to do. But what Satan loves to do is he likes to take how we feel when we receive God's word, and he likes to take conviction and turn it into this thing called condemnation. And so I want to, at the onset, get these two ends figured out between condemnation and conviction. See, condemnation is the thing that's going to be inside of you where Satan's going to whisper in and because of your sexual sin, because of your sexual immorality, because of your past, because of your divorce, because of, of whatever it may have been, your affair, all those things, he's going to try to whisper in 
condemnation to say, you're disqualified. Because of what you did, you can never serve here. You can never do those things. You don't really have a place here. You're never really going to have a successful marriage because you've already burned the bridges on a few of them already. Condemnation is an attack on your identity and who you are. I want to hopefully put in your brain a verse you can memorize when you feel him try to whisper back in condemnation. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if that means, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have given your life over to him and repented of your sins, that that means, friend, there is no condemnation. That when you hear those lies start to well up, you can say, no, that's not who I am. There's been a price that's been paid for me. There's condemnation and there's conviction. Romans chapter two talks about conviction. And it says that conviction is the kindness of God that actually leads to repentance. So where condemnation is saying to us, you're unfit, you're unuseful, you're worthless. Those are lies from the enemy. Conviction is a warm invitation from the Holy Spirit to come back to the heart of God. Friend, that's what I pray you feel. The Bible tells us that Jesus is always interceding on our behalf. That means at this very moment, Jesus is talking to the Father. I don't know how he does this, but at this very moment, Jesus is talking to the Father God, interceding on your behalf that you would not feel condemnation, that you would feel his conviction that leads back as this warm invitation back into the heart of the Father. This heart like a child that doesn't go, oh man, I messed up, I can't tell dad, I hope dad doesn't find out, but the heart of a child that goes, I messed up, I gotta go run and tell dad because he's the only one that can make it right. So that's where we're at. And that's the hope that you continue to fight to say, I'm okay with being convicted today, but I refuse to be condemned. So in this passage we read, the word lust didn't show up But the reason that they are asking these questions is because they are a lust-driven society. They are a lust-driven culture, much like us. Again, the people who are asking these questions are now people who are probably leaders in the church who a few weeks ago were with prostitutes. So they're asking these questions. They're trying to figure out how do we navigate this? How do we do this? And so Paul, and I want to lay out how he defines lust and how the Bible defines lust. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the Greek word for lust is this word epithemia. Epithemia, it's a Greek word. When you see the Bible, when you see lust in the New Testament, that's how that's being translated. It's a compound word. It's two words put together. Epi is the first part. It means over, like a, a above. It's a, a dialed up version. It's over. And then thumos means passion, but not like passion, like I'm passionate about beanie babies or whatever you want to be passionate about. It's a passion that's like a ravenous wolf. I'm passionate for blood. I'm pa- like a shark in the water. I'm passionate for blood passionate. So what this means is lust, a lot of times when we think lust, we think, oh, that's just something that's sexual. Lust is not just something that's sexual. Lust is any over-desire. So like I could lust after being a father. So if I, I'm, I'm just a single guy and I'm lusting after being a father, I go to a playground and just steal a kid. I just lust after having a child. Like I pick them up. They're mine. They're mine. It's an over-desire that causes you to go outside of God's boundaries to make or to create something that he was not ready for you to have. That's lust. Now, in regards to the other word that we see here, mentioned a couple of times in this passage, sexual immorality. Paul says this twice in this passage and all throughout his writings to the churches. And whenever you see that word sexual immorality in the Bible, it's this Greek word that we get words that we use and we hear and they're all throughout our culture, but we get the word porneia. Anytime you see sexual immorality, more often than not, it's the word, the Greek word, short word, porneia. 
the best simple definition that I could give for porneia, it means any sexual expression, any sexual expression outside of the Genesis chapter two ideal. And that Genesis chapter two ideal, you're not familiar with that, that's one man, one woman, in the context of marriage forever. That's the Genesis chapter two ideal. So let me get super awkward and talk about what is not the Genesis two ideal so that we're all on the same page, so there's no gray area. You know, the Bible is not familiar really with shades of gray in regards to things, in, in regards to sexual morality. It, it, it's pretty black and white in regards to this. So I want to just lay it out, all the things that are not confined within that Genesis 2 boundary and ideal. Things like pornography, cohabitation outside of marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual relations, polygamy or polyamory. I had to look that one up. I didn't even know what that was. Lustful masturbation. Adultery, e- even the thing where we go, hey, well, we're, we're two young couples. Oh, we just, we're so in love, we're so in love. And so, we, you know, we, we did everything but have sexual intercourse. That's porn A as well. It's lust of the eyes. It's the emotional fanatization. So the, the women in the room who are like, I don't ever look at porn. When you watch This Is Us and you see how Jack treats whoever Mandy Moore's character, I don't know what her name is. When you see how he treats her and there's something, and I'm not joking here, when there's something deep inside of your heart that goes, I wish a man would treat me like that. I long for a man to treat me like that. And you begin to imagine, what would it be like if my man treated me like that? That is pornea. Now, I know you hear that and you go, What? That's ridiculous, that's difficult, that's actually impossible. There's no way that can happen. See, we feel this way, and and when we begin to list all these things out and we kind of lay it out very clearly, we go, what in the world? That's impossible, there's no way that can happen. And we feel that because we're caught in the tension between two failed social experiments. And I want to walk you through those two failed social experiments that our culture has navigated us through and to then give you where the Bible lands on those things. So the first cultural experiment... We kind of see this. Actually, both, both of these sides are addressed here as Paul gives this passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians. The first part is this, and he kind of gets into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to show it to you. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. He says, and he's quoting them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. So again, remember, when it's in quotations, this is the church in Corinth going to Paul And they're saying to him, Paul, it's not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. And I want you to see the heart of these people. See, what's happening here is they have now been redeemed out of a a raunchy sexual lifestyle for the majority of them. And they're coming in, and now what's happening is they've allowed sex because all they've ever known it as, as this evil, wicked, twisted thing that they've done, and they've seen the mutilation, they've seen how it's hurt people, they've seen how it's wounded people, and so now that they are Christians, now that they are gospel people, they're going, no, these things, two things are together. And so what happens here is they create view one, and this started there, and it's still even in our society today. They created view one, that sex is a necessary evil. It's something to be avoided. It's something that we don't talk about. We're going to rip the underwear section and have the JCPenney magazine. Like, this is all bad stuff. We're going to have the talk, and it's just going to be, here's a pamphlet. It's scientific. You're going to miss out. Don't do it. Don't. Like, all we ever hear about sex is don't. It's a necessary evil. It's a bad word. And the only reason we have sex is so we can have kids. And the problem with this is it creates this, this formula that we thought would have brought us what we wanted. And the formula goes like this. Moral standards. Again, and, and, and that's, we can label, label that biblical standard. Moral standards plus the willpower, the power to abstain. 
the power to, to, to take the, uh, you know, the promise ring or the, the purity ring or to wear those things. Willpower equals holiness. Moral, moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. That's this kind of idea that, well, I'm just going to not. I'm just going to not. I'm just going to not. And this idea is all bound in, I'm going to be more holy because of what I don't do. And what happens here is when we do this and we just view sex as this necessary evil, it's just this thing that we do for procreation, what we actually end up doing is we miss out on God's incredible design and who he is as a good, good father who actually gave us this gift that is sexuality. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis 2. Again, we see the confinements for what a sexual relationship is there as within that context of marriage. But guess what? God created everything, a lot of great stuff, mountains, rivers, oceans, panda bears, all those, even the red panda bears, the really cool ones. He created all that stuff. He creates Adam. And it's like he looks around up at the angels in heaven. He says, get ready. I've got one more up my sleeve because something down here is not good. And it's like the angels are like, double rainbows? And God's like, no, it's something even better. And he knocks him out. He creates Eve. And upon Adam waking up to this naked woman standing in front of him, Adam sings the first R&B song as he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And what you see here is God not going, Adam, put your pants on. Like, God's not mad at Adam for this. God is, and again, this is his son and his daughter. So parents, we know when we think about, you know, we like to deny our kids are ever going to have sexual relationships. But this is God, like the ultimate father with his son and with his daughter, Knowing what's about to happen, and he's not just good with it, he's great with it because it's his design. It's how he created it to be. And he didn't just leave them naked and say, all right, y'all get to work, and once you got all your work done, you can come back, and before you go to bed, I'll give you something. I got, I got, I got one more thing up my sleeve. Y'all go get done what you need to get done, name all the animals, all that fun stuff, till the garden, all that fun stuff, and then once you get done doing your good stuff, your work, I I'll, I'll give you some Pleasure. Job one. Be fruitful and multiply. Before they ever were told to tend the fruit of the ground, they were told to bear fruit with each other. First thing they ever got told to do was it. <laughs> that's, a, that's our God, guys. And so this view that sex is a necessary evil paints God in an incredibly bad light. It's not a necessary evil. It's something that the evil one, Satan himself, has come and twisted and warped and turned into this thing that was never meant to be. It was always supposed to be this beautiful thing that was created within the context of marriage to bring two people together to not just procreate, but actually recreate, and then also to magnify God. To say, this beauty and this intimacy within the context of this marriage, it actually helps us and the people around us see God for the God that he truly is because of the intimacy and the depth that's happening in this relationship. And the problem is that when we have lived in this view that sex is just a necessary evil, it's just this bad thing that we don't talk about, that we avoid, that's just nasty, is it messes up the image of God as a father. And when we shove it into church culture, what we're seeing is that survey after survey is showing that the difference between church attenders and non-attenders and premarital intercourse and cohabitation are not different at all. They're on the same level. The, the, the use of pornography by people who go to church and don't go to church is no different. Surveys show that thousands of people have actually left churches because of hypocrisy of the church leaders that they failed to practice what they preach. So what we've seen actually happen is that the quote-unquote true formula in this of moral standards plus willpower will equal holiness 
shown us the real formula, that moral standards plus willpower equals shame. And it equals shame because you don't have the willpower. We don't have it. We don't have the ability to go, I'm just going to abstain, I'm just going to not do this, I'm just going to not do this, I'm just going to you know, tie my hands or, or, or you know, I, I don't know, I'm just going to you know, not dress, provide. I'm just going to do all these things and just have all of this and somehow it's going to work. And what ends up happening is young women who have pregnancies out of wedlock get shunned out of the churches that they grew up in. What happens is single women come in and women hold on to their husband extra hard. Oh, she's, I know what she's doing. I know she's coming around. She's fishing. Teenagers who are struggling with these things when we just suppress and suppress in our ministry areas that, 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 that it is, this is an evil thing, this is to be avoided, and, and they're feeling these real-life things that just suffer in silence, quietness. And they aren't able to have a safe place where they can walk through and navigate. And, I, and friends, again, this is why we're talking about this, because I want the church to actually be a safe place. Our world is screaming things on this. Screaming, 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 screaming. Your kids are hearing it everywhere. Every day, thousands of young lives are being aborted. Because lust drove people to sexual intimacy before it was in the context that God created it to be in. It's tearing things apart. So I I just refuse to be quiet on this. I refuse to allow people to live in shame. So the result of this failure, so many people living in shame and saying this moral authority and these willpower will lead us to just, you know, finally get to the place where we actually have holiness. It didn't lead to holiness. It led to shame. And so therefore, the pendulum swung all the way the other way. And the do whatever makes you feel good culture was created. It, it, this was um, actually kind of came to its rise in this, this sexual revolution in the 70s. Culture began giving itself this test drive to this failed experiment that was the sexual revolution. And during this thing that was called the sexual revolution, the second view of sex came out, which is that sex is just an appetite to be filled. Like, this, this is just a good desire. This is how I'm created. This is how we're wired. This is human anatomy. It's a desire to be filled. And so we can do it with whoever we want to. I can do it with him, her, it, whatever. It's a sexual desire to be filled. It's in there. It's an appetite. Fulfill it. No one should put constraints. No archaic, written a long time ago by old dead guys thing should tell me how I should live my sex life. No church person, no pastor should tell me how, what I do with my body. It's my body, my choice. And that's a sexual revolution. And Paul this was actually going on. This is why the Bible is incredibly relevant for everything that we face on a day-to-day basis. Paul had this same thing happening there. It's at the top of the passage. He quotes them. As I say, and this is kind of what they're after here, and this idea that sex is just an appetite to be filled. They use food language. All right, at the top of that passage, they say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. See, the Corinthians begin to think, some of them in their congregation begin to think that it was just a desire. And like any other desire, you get hungry, you go make a sandwich. You get aroused, and you go make something happen. You figure out how to meet that desire. In the 70s, what's crazy, this is fascinating as I was studying this, in the 70s, what what actually was going on is as this um, sexual movement was beginning, the sexual revolution was starting, there was this other movement kind of running alongside of it called the Jesus Movement. These two things were going along on the same side of it. In this Jesus movie, you go back and you look at history books in the 70s and everything else, and some of you in this room, you, you witnessed some of the stuff kind of starting on the West Coast and maybe even filtering some, some towards here, kind of coast to coast and airing into the middle of the United States. This Jesus movement arose. But a large part of what we see right now is because the sexual revolution beat out the Jesus movement. And I find it ironic and telling 
that the one thing Jesus would use in our society, in our culture, to kill a Jesus movement is a sexual revolution. See, it's, it's part of his strategy. Mary Everstop, she's a, she's a woman who studied a lot of this, and she, she wrote this really good book, um, it's Adam and Eve After the Pill. Um, in that book, she described this sexual revolution after the 70s, and this is what she said. This is how she defined it, the sexual revolution. It was the destigmatizing and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relationships in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those who are participating are consenting adults. If that's not our society, I don't know what it is. It's a hygienic recreation for consenting adults. So here's the formula we see that this second ideal of sex is just an appetite to be filled gives. It gives the formula that desire, I want this, plus consent, let's do this, equals freedom. Do whatever I want. It's up to me. And tragically, our culture has shown, as we've entered into this experiment, that freedom is not what is being offered. And freedom is not actually what's happening. And Paul addressed this to the Corinthians as well when he quoted their view. He said that food is meant for the body and the stomach for food. And at the top of that passage, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And later on in the passage, he comes down and he says that anyone who sins sexually sins against his own self. See, the point that he's trying to make here is that I will not be dominated by anything else. He's saying, pay attention, because when you have sex, you're not simply consuming something. You're being formed by something. Say that again. Sexual morality is not you just consuming something. It's not you just viewing something. It's you being formed. It is spiritually formational. All sex within and without the context of marriage is spiritually formational. And the danger is, it is like we've handed two-year-olds chainsaws that are running. Saying, here, take and operate this thing. No instruction, no training, not within the right context. Operate it. And you're seeing the damage and you're seeing the, what, what's happening because of that. And he goes on in the passage, and, he, and again, talking about this idea of an appetite. They're quoted as saying, hey, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And what Paul's saying to them is, guys, that's actually the wrong analogy. Because when you think about it in regards to food, like food and an appetite, when you're super hungry, which some of you probably are right now, and I'm going to do my best, okay? Food, when you have an appetite and you feed it, what does it do? It goes down like you're not hungry anymore. What Paul is saying is that's not how sexual desire works. That's not how lust operates. That's not how lust is after. Like if I have this lust to get this thing, and if I just go and get it, it'll go down. That's not the way sex is. Paul actually uses a much different term. It's even in that passage. He says, inflamed. This is when he was warning people about marriage and, and not. He said, hey, if you can't you know, quench the fires and the passions that burn within you, because he told people, he said, it'd be better if you didn't get married. But if you're burning with passion inside of you, you need to get married. See, Paul is kind of giving them a little bit of that fire insurance. And over and over again, when Paul talks about sexual lust in the scripture and sexual intimacy in scripture, he uses this terminology around inflamed. And I think what he was doing there, and he's explained to the Corinthians and hopefully to us today, that listen, a sexual appetite is not like a food appetite where you, it goes down once you satisfy it. He says it's not like adding food to an appetite to it go down. It's more like adding fuel to a fire. And so the image that Paul, I hope, burns in your head here is when you are born, you have a desire in you, a, a sexual desire. You're created and hardwired in because your big brother Adam or your big sister Eve, they were created with that desire. But instead of how it is when you 
get food to an appetite, and you think, okay, well, I have this sexual desire, and this is the, this is the misnomer, and this is what a lot of people think. Okay, well, I really love him. Oh, see, that, it went out there. That was false. I really love him, <laughs> and I think he's the one, and he treats me so right, and he says the right things, and so I, I, just, I just feel like, you know, there's this passion within us, and we're both wanting to do this, and, I, and, and because I do, I believe, and I know with everything in my heart that he is going to be the man that I married, so that we can suppress some of this tension and this, this distress that we feel because we're so physically attracted and connected to each other, we'll just have sex a couple of times so that it fades out so that we'll be able to buy enough time until we're married. And we think that when we say that, after intercourse, it'll just go out. And now we can just get back to doing our devos together and long walks on the beach and everything else. But I, I mean, again, it's a little bit crude. The reality is, is once you have rung that bell, it cannot be unrung. And so Paul says, it's not like an appetite where when you put something on it, it goes out. He says, it's like fuel to a fire. And so when we come into a sexual relationship, we take a desire that God put there that was a good fire, a good flame. And when we throw pornography on it, it becomes something much different, right? It wakes something up to be way worse than it ever was. It wakes something up to be much different than God intended it to be. It roars and it blazes. That's what porn does to our hearts. You don't, you don't feel it the first time. You don't feel it the second time. But when you're paying for things and you're sneaking around things and you're deleting browser history and you're downloading new apps and hiding new things on your phone and you're hooking up and connecting back with people from high school, that's when the fire is getting ready to burn every aspect of your life down to the ground. And it's doing it in our society. Because Paul says, this whole sexual thing, it's not an appetite, it's a fire. And when you feed it outside of God's Genesis 2 context, it's gonna blow up in your face. You'll be inflamed. What I hope is that we see how this is really happening. I want to walk you through um, some stats. Some of your stats people, some of your story people. I want to see how we've been caught on fire. New York Times wrote this. Again, New York Times, not a, not Christianity Today, not you know whatever anything. New York Times. This is their article from New York Times, liberal New York Times. Porn is a sickness. It's when our healthy sexuality becomes sick. The largest users of internet porn, these are all statistics, the largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 to 17. 12 to 17. And porn producers continually target adolescents. Worldwide, the number one searched term on pornography websites is teen. The pornography industry is more enormous than any of you would imagine. Where are my sports fans at? Sports fans in the room. Yeah, that's, that's us here. The pornography industry pulls in more in a year than the NBA, MLB, and the NFL combined. That's the pornography industry. And listen, 80% of American males report to using some form of pornography. So that's us. And I don't think it's just an issue that's confined to males. The largest growing population upon porn consumption is young women. Young women. I have a theory on this. It matches up with some of the sociologic theories on this. What you have happening is, again, 80% of males in America are porn viewers. And some of those porn viewers are high internet speed dads with middle school and high school daughters who are now seeing their daughter look like what they look at. 
And so because of that, now this little girl who I used to love and let sit in my lap and have all these relationships with and everything else, now because of how she looks and because she's post-puberty and, and, and the, the kids who are coming around her house, now I begin to disengage from this relationship because I feel icky. And as that relationship has distance in between it, now she seeks to go get approval and affirmation from an idiot middle school or high school boy like me. And in the midst of that, because he also, again, 12 to 17, the most views of pornography, because that's what he's watching, how he's learning sex, and how what he's seeing happen, and now where he's getting his sexual desire and fulfillment, if she wants to satisfy him and keep him around to get the affirmation, because at the end of the day, from the male and female side of things, women want to feel a certain way, emotionally. Men want to feel a certain way physically. And the woman will sacrifice doing a certain thing physically to feel a certain way, and a man will fake feeling emotionally something here to feel a certain way here. And these young women are caught in the middle of this. We're taking advantage of our vulnerable part of our, our body. And these young women. And the line's got to stop. It's got to stop somewhere. The largest growing population of consumption is young women. I believe that's the reason, right? 4.3 billion hours of pornography are viewed on one pornography website alone. I'll say that again, 4.3 billion hours. That is the equivalent of 500,000 years of pornography viewed on a single website. And again, I've said this already, it's not just visual. The fastest and best-selling book ever, all time among women, is not a cookbook. Joanna Gaines did not write it. It's a book called Fifty Shades of Grey. It's the fastest best-selling book among women ever. What's happening here is all of this, but I want you to understand also what it's doing. What pornography does in the brain of not just young people, but all of us, when we see it, when we encounter it, is it eventually rewires our brain. It increases dopamine. It's a reward chemical in our brain, and what happens there is it, re- it produces this rush feeling of euphoria, and like all addictions, what we entered in is not what will keep us there. We have to have more hardcore and more, more detailed and more imaged and more rough and, and more in, ingrained images to allow us to get to the place where it actually satisfies. As a result, many porn users report being no longer able to become sexually aroused by their spouse. This creates an even greater problem in the reward centers of our brain because what, what I learned through this is the reward centers of our brain where pleasure comes from are also connected to the parts of the brain where we process violence and competition. And so neuroscientists have created this axiom in their industry that goes like this. What fires together, wires together. And because those things are firing way more than they were supposed to out of God's God-given context because the pleasure sensor and the, um, the part of our brain where violence and competition are, are navigating together, what's happening is over time, people are being formed by pornography and sexuality in a way that fuses those two things together of sex and violence. And that's why 88% of pornography includes scenes that are violent towards women. In a recent study of 16 to 18 year olds, nearly every single person reported learning to have sex by watching porn. Young women reported being pressured to play out scripts by male partners. They reported being badgered into uncomfortable sexual positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant or painful acts. Why? Because a generation is being formed by this. Formed. Formed by it. And all research, and I say this again, all research shows correlation between sex trafficking, violence towards women, rape culture, and pornography. They are all connected together. It's not innocent. 
you're not hurting anybody is a, a lie. Straight from the pit of hell. What it does is it's trained and transformed you to do this. To, to view another individual as a commodity. Let me just pause right here. because I'm getting ready to say something that may feel awkward. Remember what I said at the beginning, because I'm going to lean in hard here. Not condemnation, but conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. See, what pornography does is it trains us to see a person as a commodity, something that we can use to get what we need, the release that we need, to cure, and again, this is the myth, to cure that appetite, and that's false, and that's so far from the truth. See, the big problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of a woman. The big problem with pornography is that when you look at a woman, what you're actually seeing is a woman with a soul, a woman with hopes, dreams, desires for a future, a woman who will spend eternity in heaven or hell, and all you can see as you look at a, look at a woman with all of those things is a set of breasts and a backside. See, the problem with pornography is it doesn't show too much of a person. It's that it shows too little. You're not able to see all of them for who they really are, who they were created in the image and likeness of your father, God, which makes you a brother and sister to them. That's what's happening, and that's how we're being formed. So those are some stats. Let me tell you a story. In uh, ancient, I don't know, it's not really ancient, but in legend and Eskimo culture is that in order for them to go and hunt animals, one of the tactics that they would issue is they would take a knife. And because in this culture, they were competing for food sources. And during the winter months, it's incredibly hard to be able to get food. And one of the things that would take food from their sources was wolves. And so these ancient Eskimos, what they would do is they would take a knife, incredibly sharp knife, and they would find a rabbit that they had killed, fresh blood, and they would take the blood and they would cover the blade in that blood, and they would let that first layer freeze onto the knife. And once that had froze on the knife, they would take it and dip it in again and let this kind of blood popsicle form. And they would take that along the game trail that they knew the, the wolves would, would be on, and they would fasten it into the ground. And as an unsuspecting wolf would come on, and remember, their, their canines just wired into their DNA to smell blood and to feast on blood and to attack, he would come to this blood popsicle and begin to lick it. Sharp on both sides. A double-edged knife in the ground, covered in blood, and began to lick and lick and lick. And as he got through some layers of the blood, what would also be happening simultaneously is the coldness of the blade and the coldness of the blood would also be numbing his tongue. And as he would begin to taste this blood, these desires inside of him, these ravenous desires that, that God created inside of this animal to, to pursue, to hunt, to be able to be satisfied, to have the food, would begin to be awakened even more. So this wasn't just curiosity, me sniffing something and licking something. It became a desire that was enraged and would begin to lick harder and harder and harder till now there was no original blood from the rabbit left on it. It was only his blood because now the wolf's tongue was bloody and its blood that it was tasting was actually its own. Its own blood was into its system. And eventually, the wolf would lick and lick and lick and lick until it bled to death. And welcome to MCC. <laughs> but I want you to hear that story because I believe it's an incredible picture of what lust and pornography will do to you. It numbs you. Many of you have felt that. It numbs you. 
And in the excitement, in the curiosity, now that again, blowtorch style, this thing has been awoke inside of you. You participate and participate and participate. And the more you do, the number you become until your soul is torn to shreds. And so is your life. And so we see the real formula here. That desire plus content does not equal freedom. That desire plus content equals emptiness that leads to death. It was an empty promise on the knife. There's always a hook in the bait. So with the rest of the time I have, I want to show you how Jesus is a better solution. Better solution than both of these by saying sex is a necessary evil and by saying, oh, well, this is just an appetite to be filled. No, Jesus comes in and he offers a better way. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 16, back half. Paul's talking to the, the church, and he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What Paul is saying here is those two desires cannot be running simultaneously at the same time. He said, your body is meant, to the, meant for the Lord. Your body is not meant for sexual morality. That you can, and again, he's talking to this Corinthian church who a lot of those guys were going like, okay, we're going to show up to Bible study on Sunday, and we're going to do that thing, and we're going to listen to the apostles' teaching, and we're going to pull up Paul's letter, and we're going to read through this and everything else, but we're still going out and hanging out with prostitutes throughout the week. Again, the, the, the past equivalent to us coming to church on Sunday and then Tuesday night, you know, because, you know, we, we got ready to go to bed and wife, we just saw sweatpants were on. We knew it wasn't in. And so like, all right, well, she's not satisfying. This need is awoke. Everybody in the sleep, house is asleep. So, you know, I'm going to be here. Paul's writing to people who are exactly like you, man. He says, you can't have both. They're not mutually exclusive. And that's why I say... Your desire cannot be to be out of lust. Your desire has to be for Jesus. And I think I mean, most all of us in the room probably have times in our life where we've asked Jesus to take away some sinful desire. And again, I'm definitely talking to lean into sexual lust here, but those of us who would say, we're gonna go outside of God's means, we're gonna go outside of whatever God's purpose is because you, man, you can lust after a pair of Michael Kors shoes. I don't even know if that guy makes shoes. I know he makes purses. Um, you can lust after any of those things. You can lust after all of that. It becomes a sin when you over-desire and you go outside of God's boundaries to get it. And a lot of times we want God to just take all those desires away. What God offers is not an escape route. God offers a path. Because on a path, you walk with him through it. A path, your faith is grown on. A path, you learn your identity that you are actually now not a, not a prisoner of those desires, not a prisoner of those things. Another way that we can navigate out of this is you have to walk in community. And I know that's where we go, I'm just going to tell God I'm struggling with this and ask him for help. And the end, been there too. I don't need to tell anybody. And, and look, again, I've been here. So I, I mean, let's, again, you, you, if you're going to know anything about me, you're going to know I'm going to be as honest and humble and transparent with you as I can possibly be when I preach on this stage, because I believe um, my brokenness will lead people to Jesus way more than my righteousness will. And so what I know is this, you at times have said, well, I'll wait till I go three or four months of not doing it before I tell anybody so that they can think better of me so I can go, oh, it's been a long time. Well, when was the last time you struggled with this? Well, it's, it's probably been three or four months or something like that. And somehow in your head, you've done the mental gymnastics to make three or four months seem better somehow than three days ago. Friend, it's not. It's not. It's like saying, well, how long have you been in prison? Well, three months. It's like showing up at a job interview. Well, how long, you know, how long were you in jail? Well, three months. How long, you, how long were you in jail? Well, three days. Like, you're not getting the job anyway. You're, you're like, 
you, know, you cannot get this job having a criminal record. So we have to walk in community. And this is where we begin to actually not just confess to God, but confess to other people. I want to show you this verse. Um, Jesus' brother wrote this. James chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. It's a verse a lot of times we, we, we take the hospitals and we use to when we go pray for, you know, Sister Adela when she's getting ready to go into surgery and everything else. But we very rarely apply it to a, a pornography-induced, sexual immorality-based sickness in our heart. He asked this question, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? I'll ask this again. Is anyone among us today sick? Anybody watching online sick? And not just like sick, like oh, I hate, but like sick as in, are you sick of this? Are you sick of it? Here's what he says. Are you sick? Let them call the elders in the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. You're forgiven. They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Again, listen to what happens there. God gives forgiveness, but then he connects it into people for healing. Again, don't miss this. He says, can you be forgiven by God without confessing your sins to somebody else? Mm -hmm. Jesus did all that on the cross. He summed all that up. Healing, though. Jesus' brother. The guy who was the brother of the one who hung on the cross, inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus in him through him, said, hey, you can get forgiveness, but there's more on the table. There's just stuff called healing too. And healing to happen, you gotta let somebody in. And so I wanna give an invitation for you to let somebody in. There's an email I'm gonna throw up here. Elders at mccreach.org. It's a confidential email that me and three other guys have the password to. And we want to walk alongside of you in this so that you can get the help that you need, so that you can get the healing that you need. So many of you have been struggling with this for far too long. You have never confessed this to anybody. Like, we're here. We're here. We want to walk through this with you. And you've got all sorts of things going on in your head. And again, you don't have to write out your sexual history to send this in an email. You just say, hey, I need help. Put, put it on there. And, and one of us will call you and we'll set up a time to grab coffee, to grab a cheeseburger, to whatever, to set up a confidential meeting somewhere where you're not going to be known or whatever. And we will have a conversation and we will begin to enter into a path so you can be led to sexual healing. Listen, the elders of our church, we do not exist to make sure the bills get paid, the right people get hired, the music level and the volumes are right. We don't exist for those things. We exist to have been given the keys of Jesus to set people free from captivity and to be used by him to walk alongside people to do that. That's why we're here. I don't know what you're looking for in a church, but man, I can tell you that freedom is a good thing to see. And it's here. And we want to be used by God to bring that. So don't let whatever issue or formality or whatever, like this is the call that God has placed on my life and the three other men, Jack Welch, um, Craig Thompson, and Greg Peterson. That's what God has placed on our life to walk this church through. And we want to do that. Now, women of God in the room, I know you may go, yeah, I'm not talking to any of those guys. I totally understand that. And I know every single one of these men of God would be more than willing on an incredibly confidential basis where they don't even know what is talked about to offer their wives up. And again, we don't just interview elders when we bring guys on. We interview the whole family and the wife is a giant part of that. But for the ladies of God in the room, 
you just put on there, I mean, again, obviously we may be able to gather that you're one from your email address, but just whatever it is, um, say, I want to I talk to an elder's wife, somebody like that. Uh, we, we will connect you and we'll make those things happen because we don't want anybody to walk through this alone. We want healing to happen. Again, these guys, we're not claiming self-righteousness, but I do believe these men are kind of the ones we've raised up and said, man, they're living lives of righteousness. And my prayer is that you don't suffer in silence any longer, that you take the body of Christ for what it is, something that would walk alongside of you and help you out of it. Last thing I think we gotta be able to do if we wanna see freedom here is you gotta be intense. It's a war. You either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a very simple fact of life. You, know, you have to be intense. And Jesus, he gave a really intense conversation on lust. It was a hard conversation on lust in his sermon. And again, this is, <laughs> why do you talk about this? Jesus wasn't 28 chapters into the greatest sermon ever preached, and he was already on this topic. And in Matthew 5, 28, he says this, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in heart. And again, he's just talking to guys because it was primarily guys in the crowd that day, ladies in the room, he would say the same thing to you. Hey, ladies, when you saw that fella putting those boxes up on the shelf and his shirt went up a little bit and you saw a six-pack and you went, dang, like he would call you out just as well as he would the fellows in the room. He knows your heart as well. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And the point that he's trying to make there is you have got to be intense. His, his purpose there and his point there is not for you to be mutilated. It's to be intense, to go to whatever length, whatever measure it may take. I imagine if Jesus had told this you know, on this parable, and this is where I think I've had people ask, well, is Jesus being literal right here? No, but I don't think we just dismiss the fact that he's not being literal. I think there's something he's actually trying to get them to get out of this, and it's this. Imagine there's a man there, Sermon on the Mount, and he, he has this conversation, and he hears Jesus say this, and he says, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I want to be a disciple. And he goes out after that moment, after her, having heard Jesus, go cut your eyes out and, and cut your arms off and all this other type of stuff. And he goes, and, and again, as he's committed to become a follower of Christ, he falls back into that sin because it's still not fully out of his heart yet. And he lusts in his heart and masturbates. And then he goes and cuts off the part of him that led him to that sin. He cuts his hands off, both of his hands gone. He says, all right, well, oh God, my hands are gone. I can still see, I can still walk. Let me just try to do better. And then he sees something, someone, and it makes him act on something. And he goes to that side of town, he walks down that side of the street, and even though without hands, he commits sexual immorality, he, he has sex with a prostitute. And he knows that his eyes are what led him down that path. And so in his anger, he plucks his eyes out, gets them out of his head. And so now, armless, or handless, eyeless, he still feels this desire in him. It, it, it doesn't quite go away. And he's trying to work. He's trying to avoid things. He's trying to do these things differently. But his feet begin to wander back to where he was before. And so in his anger, he cuts off of his feet. And now, footless, handless, eyeless, his path crosses with Jesus again. And Jesus, I imagine, looks at him and goes, Son, what happened to you? And out of pain and anguish and desperation, 
This now mangled man looks up and says, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it, I, I couldn't stop. I cut my arms out, I cut my, I, cut my, I cut my eyes out of my head, I cut my feet off. And I believe Jesus, with all the tender love and kindness that he could ever muster up in his life, would say to that man the same way I believe he would say to you, the thing that has kept you doing this is not your eyes, is not your hands, are not your feet. The thing that has kept you doing this is you have a heart. The only way you could have cut this out of your life is if you cut your heart out. And friend, I am the only one who can do that. I'm the only one capable of performing a heart surgery that replaces your heart of stone with my heart of flesh that gives you something new where I can be the king and the maker, the ruler and the the prince of your heart that can satisfy every need, every desire that is in you. I'm the only one who can do that. I think he would say the same thing to us. He's not telling you to cut stuff off. He's telling you to allow him to perform surgery on your heart so that he can be the king and ruler of it. My prayer is today that you would allow him to do that. As I was studying this this past week, I came across this Japanese art form called, uh, let me make sure I don't get it wrong because it's Japanese and it was a hard word, kintsugi. Japanese art form, kintsugi. And this art form, kintsugi, it is created by a potter taking a broken vessel, broken piece of clay, some kind of broken pot, some vase, whatever, uh, cups oftentimes and bowls oftentimes is what they would use. They would take these broken vessels and then they would melt down precious metals, oftentimes gold, and then they would put the piece of pottery back together. Though it had been broken, they would fuse it back together with this precious metal. And now, this thing that was once broken and worthless has now increased in its worth exponentially because of what has been infused into it. And friends, Everywhere in this room, there are broken vessels. But I want you to understand that at the hands of the true potter, at the hands of the true creator, you can be made well. And unlike a precious metal that can be fused back into who you are, the thing that is the precious element that can be fused back into who you are, that pieces you back together, is the very blood of Christ himself. As he became the ultimate broken vessel on a cross, umped out and poured out for the forgiveness of all mankind so that you can be made back whole. To have all of your past forgiven and all of your future with the potential to be redeemed and glorious because of his grace and his mercy. And so as we enter into communion, you're gonna hold a little cup. And as you hold that little cup, I want you to know what type of cup you are. You are a kintsugi cup. Through Christ, you can be a broken vessel that is now being made whole. A broken vessel, but because of what is fusing you together, what has made you back whole, you can know that you were bought with a price. And that precious thing, that price that was paid is now flowing in and through you through the power of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. If you're here and you don't know that Jesus and you want a relationship with that Jesus, I'm just going to stay up here. And I'd love to, I'm love i going to be down here out up front maybe as long as I, I need to before we go back and celebrate Rachel. Um, and whatever prayer I can pray, whatever help I can bring, whatever um, restoration or healing I can pray for, I, I'm here. I'll stay as long as we need to. And for some of you, it's not going to be something that happens down here. It's going to be a conversation that happens with one of our elders. And God's going to bring healing. I can't wait. I I, I believe, and that's been a heavy part of my life of praying through this all this week. I believe healing is going to happen here. Lives are going to be changed. 
your family through. Some of you... Some of you found pornography from a father. And he found it from his. For some of you, this is, this is a generational sin. And I believe by the power of Christ, in this moment, right now, that for some of you in this room, he is going to use you to be the one that breaks that curse, that breaks the hand of Satan, that breaks that thing on your life, and your family will go from being one that was rotten, that only bore terrible, rotten fruit, that was passed down from kid to kid to kid to kid, and your family is going to be changed forever because you're going to have the gall enough to send an email. Something that simple is going to change destinies because your openness to his spirit in this moment. Don't close them off. Hear the heart of the Father over you. No condemnation for you if you are in Christ, but let his conviction be a warm invitation back into the arms of the Father today. Jesus, lead us to you. Lead us away from ourselves. Pull out the hearts of stone and replace with hearts of flesh. In your name.